Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date, informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. Welcome, everyone, to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast. My name's Jackie Lewis, and I'm the clinical nutritionist for BN Multi. And today, we're talking with Sally Livick about protein and protein needs before and after surgery and all the ins and outs of that nutrient we talk about so much. Sally is a senior team member of the Sunshine Coast Medical Weight Loss Centre and has helped thousands of clients achieve bariatric success. She's been a member of Anne's Moss for 15 years, is an APD and a member of the ANZAED, Australia and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders, and also a member of the Australian Lifestyle Medicine Society. Apart from being up to date on everything bariatric, Sally is also a wonderful practitioner and also a beautiful person. So welcome, Sally Livick. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Jackie, for that wonderful introduction. That's very kind of you. We do try. (laughs) Pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about what's going on. There's been some developments in the area of protein and bariatric surgery. What What is protein firstly and why is it so important? Yeah, great question. Protein is really essential, vital for life. I, ge- I guess we can define its um, function into two categories, structure and, and function. So if we look at structure, it's, it's the main part of muscles. There's over 600 muscles in the human body and about 45% of the total body mass or weight is indeed muscle. So muscles are really important and they're made of protein. Um, also, it's a very important as far as function goes. So uh, day-to-day function and chemical reactions in the body are caused by enzymes and proteins, the component of enzymes. So every chemical reaction from digestion through to hormonal reactions and, and blood reactions and chemical reactions in the brain require enzymes and their proteins. Hormones certainly derived from proteins as well. And proteins function to help the immune system stay strong. So their role is really varied and, and, and very vital. Absolutely. Yeah, I always talk to my patients who are slipping back into eating maybe too many carbohydrates. And I always say, we're made out of protein. We're not made out of carbs. And yeah. that's why is every function basically in the body relies on protein, particularly looking at that perspective of the enzymatic and the neurotransmitter production. So you can see why people do start to feel a bit sad when they don't have enough protein in their life. Absolutely. So we, again, I, I think that's a terrific point. Most people just think in terms of muscles but the function of protein is so much bigger than that. Mm, Um, Absolutely. mm. You were mentioning bariatric patients have higher needs for protein. What's that about? How does that come about? Yeah, they have higher needs for many, many reasons. If I can just list a couple of them. First of all, we've come across this new concept called sarcopenic obesity. So Mm. sarcopenia is traditionally um, a loss of muscle strength and function, and it's usually associated with ageing. So as people get older, they lose the amount of muscle they have and the strength of their muscles, and that's just a normal part of ageing. As we talk later, we'll see that a lot of the new protein recommendations have come off the back of the studies around sarcopenia. There is such a thing as sarcopenic obesity. So um, a lot of overweight patients actually have less muscle strength and muscle function. So we see in our bariatric population people arriving to surgery with all already reduced muscle function and muscle mass and then they're going to go into a really restrictive period, certainly in the three to six months, where it's difficult to meet protein needs. So that can impact it further. 
So that's, mm. that's the first thing, um, sarcopenic obesity, is, is that you will see lots more about that in the near future. Secondly is that um, often patients and up to 80% of people coming into bariatric surgery have fatty liver and fatty liver is just one of the consequences of being obese. And it, it certainly requires a higher protein intake to maintain that liver's function when it's fatty. So they have higher protein requirements. They're also, as I said, about to undergo surgery. So that requires recovery. And they're about to undergo a period, both pre actually and post surgery, of restricted dietary intake. So they're they're about to drop their intake down. So it's really important that that intake is sufficiently high in protein to meet their needs. And there's also that reduced GI changes. There's less stomach, um, so gastrointestinal, less stomach acid after surgery, uh, less absorption of protein. Certainly in the restrictive procedures such as the bypass, there's less capacity to absorb the protein. So all of these factors lead into the fact that the protein requirements are quite high. That's an interesting thing is making sure that those different, you know, stages are managed, you know, as per the requirements as well. So looking at these requirements, how much do we need and how do we find out, you know, what our daily requirements are, either pre-surgery or post? Is there a special method? Yeah, that's a fabulous question. And that's where my research has led me to uncover the lack of evidence or the lack of distinct guidelines around protein intake. You may be familiar and a lot of people listening to this will be familiar with the ASMBS guidelines, which have always talked about 60 grams of protein for a woman and 80 grams of protein for a man. That's been pretty standard for the last 20 years in bariatric surgery. The new evidence is coming through now to show that that is far from going to meet requirements. In actual fact, that's falls so far short of meeting requirements that it really needs to be looked at. And, and, and we are hoping in the near future there'll be some solid recommendations made. The ASMBS did actually, in the last 2020 micronutrient update, allude to the fact that protein requirements more likely need to be about 1 to 1.5 grams per kilogram ideal body weight. And mm. that's pretty much on the mark. So how do you know how much you need? It's about calculating your requirements based on either your ideal body weight or your adjusted ideal body weight. And, and these calculations, whilst not very difficult calculations, really can be a bit tricky for the, for the general public. So this is where the role of a, a bariatric dietitian comes in. And I would strongly recommend that anyone going to uh, consider bariatric surgery links in with a dietitian who, who can do these calculations for you and ensure that you're actually going to meet your requirements. And, and as the weight reduces, these calculations need to be recalculated mm. and reduced. So it's not just a figure that you follow the whole time. It's about recalculating. It's about recalibrating. And, it, and it's about working out how and how you need these requirements. Because if we look at an average bariatric person, let's say we have a, a bariatric client that's about 120 kilos and they're 165 centimetres 
that's sort of an average bariatric woman, her her ideal body weight, 68 grams of protein, uh, sorry, her ideal body weight is 68 kilos. If we do the calculations on that, the requirement of protein or the calculated amount of protein is around about 100 grams a day. So that's that's, that's the amount that this, yeah, which is significantly greater mm. than the 60 grams. Absolutely. That, it's nearly twice what yeah. has been recommended. Yeah. And not only that, there's the juggle of squeezing that into that tiny little tummy. So mm. I think as a patient, that's where the connection with the dietitian is so important because there's a lot of tricks that you can show them how to, you know, plan meals and, and which sources of protein are obviously bioavailable and that sort of thing. So that ongoing input, I think, is the key as things change. But also, you know, if you're finding it hard to fit in 100 grams of protein, there are different methods of doing that. Yeah, we'll cover some of those um, a little bit later in this, mm. in this podcast. I guess the other point I'd like to make too is that if you're thinking about protein requirements for say a 50 or 60 year old woman they're vastly different than protein requirements for a 22 year old male so we need to have it very individualized so those that are at risk of losing more muscle are those that have more muscle so young men have a much higher protein requirement than say an older person might have Mm. so again those protein needs and the calculations used are different uh, depending upon the the patient's individual requirements Um, so it's not a matter of just asking google how much protein do i need (laughs) exactly and i think it's really important and again the other thing is they need to be recalculated you don't want someone on a really trying their hardest to meet this really high protein intake say eight nine ten months down the track when their weight's significantly less therefore their requirements are less Mm. and so if you are not meeting your protein needs if you're not quite sure what they are or you've been given a different guideline what would you see in a patient who's low in protein and as much as their kind of indications from a day-to-day perspective. Yeah, look, you you, you can see muscle wasting and it's quite mm. evident. Um, everyone is going to lose weight and a lot of people do get saggy skin, but certainly muscle wasting is one of the main effects of low protein, low immunity as well. Mm. People just uh, pick up colds and flus and things because protein's involved in the immune system. They often feel flat. They just feel terrible. Um, mm. You can certainly look at further down the track you know, the, 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 the consequences of, of significant protein, um, malabsorption and things like edema, where mm. your body actually pulls fluid around the ankles and lower limbs. And certainly renal function can be affected because the organs of the body are made of protein as well. Right. So if you're yeah. not supplying your body with enough protein, their function can be uh, affected as well. So it, it's quite significant, the effect of um, not meeting protein requirements. Mm, absolutely. And you know, not left. It, it doesn't take long for these sorts of things to show up either when it's happening on a regular basis. Yeah, that first three to six months when things are really restrictive is a difficult time um, mm. to meet needs. And you, you know, I always say to my bariatric clients, I want you to feel healthier and to be healthier at the end of this process, not just to be thinner and unhealthy um, and have, you know, nutritional bloods that are poor function in your body that's not as good as it could be. We want you to actually improve in all parameters, not just Mm. weight. Yeah, it's not just about getting skinny, is it? It's more about gaining health and not kind of, I always talk about swapping health issues for other health issues. So if your nutritional profile is inappropriate after surgery, 
you might might find that your blood pressure is lower, but you'll have a realm of other health issues that you're dealing with. And that's kind of wasn't the goal of bariatric surgery at all. It's more to gain health overall. So these things are quite key to investigate. Before your surgery, when they're on the pre-op stage within the VLED or the very low energy diet, how do we meet protein needs in that time? Yeah, great question. So again, the field of bariatrics is changing. Um, For many years, we used three VLED, so very low energy diet using shakes. Uh, Three a day is what people were given. It was sort of very similar to the 60 or 80 gram protein. It was just one recommendation for everyone with some veggies or salad. So just to recap, the idea of the VLED is to shrink the liver so that the surgical risks are less and the surgeon actually has easier access to the the little tummy. So shrinking the liver involves um, a strict diet whereby we're taking the carbohydrate out of the liver. So we are on a very low carbohydrate diet and the length of that time depends on your weight and your BMI um, and it also depends on comorbidities. So if you've got a really fatty liver or perhaps you've got diabetes, you might be on it for a little bit longer. And again, that's where your dietitian needs to look at how long that program is. It's not just a standard two-week thing. It's very Mm. important to individualise it. Now, these three-a-day VLED plans fall absolutely short for meeting protein requirements in the bariatric patients. Yep. So if we look at the standard, there was three or four main, and I'm not going to name names, but there were three or four main supplements or VLED products that were very popular in Australia over the last few years. In the last, say, three or four years, there are new supplements come on the market that are so much improved. But the Mm. traditional ones that that we saw fell short by about 35 grams of protein a day for women and up to 50 grams of protein a day for men. Mm. So... Yeah, that that those original programs we're using very did not meet protein requirements. Um, some of the higher protein ones now absolutely do, and there are some that are so much more uh, superior than others. But I guess the message is: see your dietitian, go through the products, and find out which ones are better to use. The high protein ones, uh, there are a couple that meet requirements. Some of the others still don't meet requirements, and you would have to use additional protein. What we're all tending to do these days is rather than use a three product plan we're tending just to use two VLED products and then look at one high protein low carb meal Mm. and and that does lots of things it gives an opportunity to to give a protein boost so it's an extra way of getting protein in and secondly it just aids compliance and acceptability from the the patient's side of of you so they're able to have a normal family meal at night without the carbs and then they just use the shake for say breakfast and lunch or it can be flexible which meals you replace but that's the the way that we tend to encourage most people to approach the the VLED now with a with a high protein meal um, and protein snacks during the day so that they can top up to meet those protein requirements as calculated by that calculation. That's interesting, you know, getting to have that meal. I imagine someone who's taking on the VLED and told that they need to have three shakes a day and that's pretty much it. It's not necessarily fun, but it's also, I think, it's looking at teaching them something about how to prepare a healthy meal and what to do after surgery rather than just this meal replacement shake, you know. And I think that also steers down the track if there is any regain or things are changing will steer them away from just replacing meals with shakes and looking at kind of food first and reaching their needs via those other 
other options, you know, good healthy meal with um, meat and veggies, which of course delivers a whole lot of other phytonutrients and that sort of thing as well. So I think that's a great point. It's not always just about the protein, it's about the whole food. And I'll I'll touch on that in the near future when we're chatting in a minute. But great point. Look, that it's very daunting for someone to go on to a three shake program not have a meal Um, and again this doesn't have to be hard there are challenges but if we can encourage people I I always talk about setting yourself up for success Mm. so if I'm working some with someone we're identifying those areas of their normal day-to-day food intake patterns that may need to change to to enable them to be as successful as possible out the other side Uh, Mm. and one of them is eating regularly so that that program of having a breakfast, which can be a shake, and then making sure they have lunch and then making sure there's a a good, healthy meal at night and starting to investigate what that might look like if they're not used to cooking and then getting used to making time for some protein snacks during Mm. the day as well. Um, And, again, if they can start to get into these sorts of habits, it does um, improve the chances of success after surgery. Yeah, it's that long-term vision, isn't it, and understanding the portion of that meal, the whole thing it's a real starting point I feel and it might as well start before surgery because it certainly needs to happen after so that's um yeah again another education point as well so this protein magical thing what's your recommendation on achieving these goals is there you know different products is there a recommendation you make as far as an approach to protein intake firstly but also fitting it all in and planning it out yeah look it's tricky certainly what we know is in the first three months at least it's pretty difficult to meet protein requirements without the aid of a protein supplement. Mm. You just can't physically fit the amount of food in. Protein's quite bulky um, other other than than milk and and, plant milks, which let me just make a point here. If you're going to use more of a plant-based diet and plant milks, please make sure that they have added protein and added calcium. So the example is standard um, almond milk and standard oat milk off the shelf. Those that are not fortified are just like flavoured waters. So make sure that they've got the, the, the calcium and protein added into them. Um, but in order to achieve requirements, you will need to use a, a supplement, certainly in the first three, if not the first three months, uh, six months. Let me say the point that you made, uh, you were talking about food first approach. And that's, I think it's really important to understand that whilst these supplements have a role, we do want to encourage people to eat food. It is that whole approach that we're looking at iron, we're looking at zinc, we're looking at calcium, B12, phytonutrients. So when you're eating your protein foods, you're getting a lot more than just protein. So so it's definitely important to base your meals around protein and then use your protein powders as a top up and using them as a sole source of nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. In the first three months, I really love my clients to continue with a shake if they can, because that's often a way of getting in 30 grams of protein. And it's also a really good breakfast option. I find a lot of people aren't big breakfast eaters. And certainly after surgery, a big breakfast doesn't sit sit well. They may have been someone who's never really had breakfast in the past. So if they've used that shake for breakfast, as as you alluded to, it's really good to keep that going as a pattern and and just use a shake. Yeah, I agree Um, with that. Tell me 
the difference between a meal replacement and a protein supplement? Yeah, so a, a meal replacement has a whole vitamin profile in it. So it'll have micronutrients as well as macronutrients. The protein supplement is just pure protein. Mm. And I guess we could talk about the different types of protein yeah, supplements. Of um, so usually what we're going to come across in protein supplement land is a whey-based protein or a collagen-based protein. So the, they have different roles. So whey is the protein that contains the amino acids that are essential for all of those functions we talked about as far as muscle strength and immunity and cells and neurotransmitters. So whey is, is definitely related to muscle and body function. Collagen, the other type of protein, is more structural. So that's mm. the, the hair, skin and nails. Um, so in an ideal world, um, in the first three months to six months, we'd be using a whey-based supplement and then you'd bring in your collagen supplement as well. So I, I like clients to have a little bit of both and, and that's an ideal situation, but whey is definitely the preferred supplement to use. Mm, and it's very, it's higher in bioavailability, which means it's absorbed better, keeps you fuller for longer and um, the the whey protein isolate specifically rather than a whey protein concentrate. So there's Absolutely. differences there as well. Yeah. You can see why we need a professional on board because <laughs> it's just a minefield of information, it is. isn't it? And, you and, know, and a I lot do? of people have um, a lactose intolerance after surgery. So the yeah. whey protein isolate is going to be lactose free yeah. as opposed to the concentrates, which often aren't. So yeah, there's a lot more to it than I'll just go and grab something off the shelf. The other point I need to make is the, the new thing that we've um, uncovered. So I guess a lot of this protein um, science has come from the land of sports dietetics. They're mm. the experts in it and bariatrics are starting to glean some information. Sadly, there's not a lot of research on, on bariatrics and protein, but but what we've, we've uh, gleaned from the, the science um, dietitians is that leucine is important as well. And leucine is an amino acid that really helps muscle synthesis. Um, so leucine is really not um, found in collagen, but leucine will be found in whey protein isolates. Yes. Um, so another reason for using those because um, without the leucine, you're not getting maximum benefit from your protein supplement. Mm, that's a good point. I did hear that recently too. And so food first, and then how do we distribute protein? Is there a limit yeah. to how much we can take in at each time and how do we squeeze in this portion? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. So, so we know from studies over the years with protein that the ideal protein distribution is to try to aim for 25 to 30 grams of protein each meal. Mm. That's the amount that helps maximise muscle synthesis. You can have more than that and there's been lots of studies again in the sports science field that shows, yes, you can have extra, but what we know is we would like our bariatric clients to try to meet that. They want mm. extra, well and good, but it's about trying to have at least that, which is tricky enough to get to 25 yes. grams. So that's the first key message, that breakfast, lunch and dinner really need to be about 25 or 30 grams of protein. And if we hark back to breakfast again and we look at just what the general population eat, most people don't eat a lot of protein for breakfast. They mm. might have a bit for lunch and the majority of their protein comes in at night. So in our bariatric population, it's not much different. Getting the protein in at breakfast tricky. That's where the shake comes in. Or certainly using a protein powder to fortify the meal. Mm. So it may be that in winter you're going to use some oats, some protein, make it with milk, a bit more protein, but then you would definitely need a, pro a whey protein to boost yes. up that. Or you might use a high-protein yogurt, which might give you, depending on how much you can eat, 15 grams of protein. So you could add the protein powder 
to reach that 25 gram target. And the research on a heavily protein loaded brekkie is also shown for weight loss and satiety throughout the day. I think I read recently that people who have a a good solid protein intake in the morning can eat up to 80% less calories throughout the day because they're not spiking that blood glucose in the morning and insulin coming on the scene. Um, So the effects of that are huge for that afternoon slump and the cravings and that sort of stuff generally mid-afternoon to early evening. Absolutely. And we see this, we see this after like the first six months, not so much of that. But as we transition um, post-surgery to say 12 months to two years, when Mm. the effects of the surgery, so the the dulling of the appetite, um, the the hormonal feedback effects with the carb cravings start to reduce, those effects aren't quite as strong as what they were say in the first 12 months, Mm. Um, really important that these behaviours have been established because as you say, the frustrating thing for patients is the dulling of these effects can start to happen. And if they're not cautious, old habits can kick in and then we can see weight stalls and regains. Yeah, absolutely. So the first year I always say is like the honeymoon period where you're not as hungry and everything's lovely and you're losing weight. But that's also the time when you're really setting the foundation of habits and portion management and understanding, you know, this kind of conversation of protein needs and how to to fit that in throughout the day. Absolutely. Um, That first, the first 12 months is your time to use the surgery, which is really a tool. So mm. the, the tool it gives you is portion restriction and appetite control and regulation. That is um, the tool will work for you beautifully for that first and it's different for everyone but certainly you know up to anywhere up to two to three years but as you say habits developed um in that first 12 months are so important moving forward mm, and yep. tweaking it as you go along the other thing i wanted to just highlight is that we're not talking 25 grams of meat we're talking about 100 grams of meat to meet yeah, 25 really, grams of protein because yeah. i Great often point. get that question asked is like you're looking for 25 grams it's like it's not much but it's yeah. actually the actual content of the food is often if you look at generally it's 100 grams for meat um, 25 grams of protein a little bit lower for fish but it's yeah it's a significant portion if you're squashing it into tiny pouches absolutely that's a really good point Jackie because people do get confused of weight of protein and grams of protein yes so yes important so you're right it's about 25 to 27 for that 100 gram which is probably twice the amount of bariatric patient most bariatric patients in the first six to 12 months fit in about 50 or 60 grams Mm -hmm. at a time and so how do you get that in um, that that's the that's again we're working with a dietitian can can work you out some meal plans um, and have a look at how you can adopt that to suit your lifestyle. Some people prefer a bigger meal at lunchtime. Shift workers are all over the place. They need yeah. someone to sit down and work out how you how you meet these requirements. It's quite individual and it can be quite daunting. But if you can work with a dietitian, we've done it lots of times for for various people before, so we can draw on practically examples and just help you navigate that tricky area. Correct. And that was my next question actually was the difference between a general dietetic care and specialized bariatric dietetics. Where where do you see the differences there and how important is it for someone to make sure they're seeing someone who has that bariatric understanding? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, I liken it to sports dietetics. If you're if you're the average person who likes to have a little bit of a run now and again or might do a little bit of park running or think they might do a, a, a one event, really 
a generalist dietitian will have solid dietetic skills and be able to help you with your requirements. If another example would be you start training seriously and you want to compete in events, you're putting all the time and effort into it, then you need to have a sports dietitian who understands Mm -hmm. the intricacies of using all your time and energy to get the best results with your fuel. It's similar to bariatrics. If you're going to look at spending time, financial commitment, um, a change of life opportunity, you want to make the best of that opportunity. You want to be as get as much out of it as you possibly can. And I think that's the difference where a experienced bariatric dietitian, someone who keeps up to date, attends meetings, is a member of ANSMOS, our professional body, goes to seminars, webinars, and is actively involved in, in professional development. I think that's where you're going to get the most support if you use that analogy between the sports dietitian and the bariatric dietitian. Yeah, good point. And so where would a patient find an ANSMOS recognised uh, bariatric dietitian cell? So ANSMOS has a website, so A-N-Z-M-O-S-S, so it's the Australian New Zealand Metabolic Surgery and Obesity Society. They have a website and if you go onto their website, there's a finder dietitian and it'll come up with a map of Australia and you just click on your um, state um, and there'll be a list of ANSMOS dietitians on there. Perfect. And we'll also have your connections in the show notes. Often we, in our live sessions, in our Facebook group and that sort of thing, we'll actually ask people to contact us because we obviously have contact with all the bariatric dietitians as well. So if you're feeling lost and you'd like to find someone who's specialising, reach out and we can certainly point you in the right direction. And just put a little um, extra in. I actually um, telehealth as well. So I do oh. have I have clients all over Australia that I'm telehealthing. So it doesn't have to, if you can't find someone in your state or close by, I have clients from everywhere. I'm um, very brilliant. happy to It's one of the good things you. that came out of COVID, I suppose. Absolutely. Isn't it? It absolutely is. with. And, and we see so many rural bariatric mm. patients and yeah. the limited support that's on offering, you know, country and far-reaching areas that this has really brought a new way of finding that, you know, support. And if you don't like the local dietitian or the local GP or whatever, you just, you can get a recommendation from your friend in Melbourne if you live in WA and you can use their... Absolutely. And And on that note, Jackie, yeah, some of the surgeons don't have a team. So some surgeons um, work within a team um, and some don't. Some will just say, go and see a dietitian. So I always feel really sorry. And a lot of the clients that actually come to me via telehealth are ones that haven't had that support. Correct. And it's really a shame because the journey can be made so much easier if you've got someone holding your hand, both for emotional support and, and practical dietetic yeah. support. So, you know, if that, they're the, the patients that I feel miss out a little bit. So I think telehealth has, has made it a bit more equitable for everyone these days which is a good thing and you visit your gp and can you gain a plan for bariatric dietetics yes you can via telehealth yes absolutely that makes it accessible too so it's not a big financial burden as well yep absolutely brilliant and so should we have a chat about some practical ways of bringing more protein into your life as a daily thing we do sure 
Um, Do you have some tricks? Yeah, well, I think if we're working on that 25 grams a meal, if we look at a couple of different examples, say we, we sort of quickly looked at breakfast as being either a shake or, again, I've lots of clients who just want a coffee for breakfast. And, mm. you know, a cup of milk is a healthy food option. So I often say, well, just put your protein powder in your milk coffee, then you might want your breakfast and morning tea. And that's okay as well. Yeah, so they might, because breakfast is a good source of whole grains. And let's face it, after surgery, whole grains don't feature highly. So something like a whole grain cereal or perhaps a overnight oats where you could put protein and yogurt and protein in that, or even oats coming into winter that we can add extra protein to. The other point that I just want to make, Jackie, is that 25 grams can actually be over about a 45 to 60 minute window. Mm. So if they've had a, a milk coffee for breakfast, which, you know, a cup of milk gives you about nine grams of protein, about half an hour later, they could then have their, which I said, pudding or oats or wheat bix with protein on it and join that together to make mm. that 25 or 30 gram protein load. So yeah, it can, can be sl- split over two sessions. So breakfast isn't as bad when you think about it, but you probably need to have either a shake or protein powder for brekkie. Mm. Lunch, the secret with lunch is being planned and organized. If you're at work, it's really important to take your food or keep food at work that you can access because it's very tricky to meet protein requirements just trying to go to the cafeteria. Absolutely. I think the minute you step out your front door, finding protein, finding good forms of protein is quite hard if you're on the go and being unprepared is a disaster waiting to happen in my opinion. Absolutely. So I usually get people to use, and you've got a good selection of them on on your website, little, little bento boxes, little containers that you can take your lunch in. One of the easiest things for lunch is leftovers. Mm. It really is. And, and certainly in winter when you've got soups and slow cooker dishes, they're a great way of getting your protein in. So if you're having about 50 grams of protein in a meal, which might be, um, I usually say 50 grams, if you if you look at the palm of your hand, the, the big muscle that runs along um, your palm from your little finger down to your wrist, that's about 50 grams in most people. So try to put a piece of protein that big in your lunch or a little tin of tuna or salmon hmm. or maybe eggs can be a bit filling, a hard-boiled egg, but if you curried it up and mashed it up with perhaps a bit of cottage cheese, it's a little easier. And you may need to, in certainly in the first six months, add a bit of protein to that meal. So hmm. it goes well in cottage cheese. You can pop it in your um, canned fish. You can certainly pop protein powder in any soup or casserole roll or if you don't want to do that as I said 30 minutes after the meal when it's safe to have a drink you could have a high protein drink then and that would give you that 25 or 30 gram protein opportunity around lunch. That is a great solution is the splitting there because a lot of people are like oh my god I've just had that and I can't fit any more in but if you know that you know within you have a window of an hour to really um, take in a meal and classify it almost like two little meals as one. Yeah it's called a top up. I call it a yeah. Yeah, protein top-up just so that you can meet your needs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's always protein first, isn't it? It should be protein first. So if you look at the bariatric plates, I mean, they're always designed with half of the plate protein. Mm. So we do encourage, and I encourage clients for most of the meals and snack to think of protein first and then add some veggies, which can be tricky in itself, and then add some carb. And it's not, it's not a no-carb diet. I think we need to be really clear on that. Carbs are very, very, very important. important. Yeah, the, the, the whole grains and certainly things like pre and probiotics that are found are really important for the gut biome. So let's keep the grains in there. So there should be some carb 
and, and a low GI carb, things like whole grain rice, mm. uh, things like whole grain crackers, sweet potato, you know, those things definitely form a role and, and should be included. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, the focus is on protein, but we also, uh, it's easy to demonize carbs. It's just certain types of carbs we do steer away from. Um, sweet potato with, you know, some minced meat and a bit of cheese on the top, yeah, pretty nice, right. especially now yeah. coming into winter. We've Absolutely. also, yeah, talking about transporting food food we've got some great thermal solutions on the website now too for bento box transport and that sort of stuff so with the cooler weather it's a good opportunity tell me also so you get to the end of the day and you've had a busy day at work and maybe you haven't met your protein needs and you've just got room for dinner what would you suggest if there's been a you know a bit something that's been overlooked during the day is there somehow we can catch that up in the evening yeah a a lot of people in the early phases don't want something after dinner later on um, that's probably one of the habits that does come back people are looking for something after dinner and it can be that that's when sweet treats come back in so that would be an ideal time if you're doing it you know if you're looking at that 60 minute window to have something like um, a yogurt Mm. or to have even a milk-based drink sometimes people look if you're looking for something sweet you could use one of the um, low sugar hot chocolates and you can pop some protein powder into that there are studies from the sports dietitians as well that look at sports science people having a bit of protein before bed which is really ideal for maintenance of muscle function over the night so um, a protein serve they say about 10 o'clock but you know if you if we're trying to get that 30 grams in it's going to be much earlier than that but certainly it's a great opportunity for that top up protein after the meal as far as trying to hit that target with the meal winter is so much easier than summer it is, um, it? it is because you can use the soups and the slow cooked meals, which sit easier in a tiny tummy mm. and you can usually fit a little bit more in. So if we're looking at, you know, anything in your slow cooker, casserole, stews, curries, those sorts of things are going to be a great way. And again, if you, if you need a little bit more, well, then you'd pop a bit of protein powder in there. Mm. If your amounts are greater so that you can fit, if you're having about 80 or 90 grams weight of meat or fish or chicken, and then you're having a few veggies or something, a little bit of rice as well, you'll get to somewhere around that 25 gram mark. Mm. So you may not need to use the protein powder depending on how much you can fit in your tummy. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I wanted to talk about is how tightly bound protein becomes with different things we do to it. So protein sources, you know, from eggs to meat to, you know, tuna and that sort of thing. Do you have a list of which ones are the better ones as far as, you know, bang for your buck and availability goes once they're in the digestive system? Yeah. So so in a nutshell, the uh, plant-based proteins aren't quite as high in quality as animal-based proteins. So if we're looking at, and we go on the protein um, digestibility amino acid score, which is is the PDCAAS score. Um, Mm -hmm. And if we're looking at that, the higher quality proteins, the pure proteins are things like egg white, turkey, chicken breast, tuna, and whey proteins in that list. So they're the highest. And then the, the second highest are things like lean steak and pork and then the quality of protein comes down a little bit when we're looking at dairy products but still good protein and then and at the end of the list are the plant-based protein so we're mm. looking about tofu lentils um, seton which is a really good quality uh, protein as far as protein quality goes and amino acid score is, is good in the plant-based as is tvp textured vegetable proteins quite yeah. high so some if you 
you're choosing your, and again, I think this is important when we're looking at uh, sources of protein or practical tips that you link in with a, a, a dietitian who you might you might link in with as a plant-based dietitian who mm. may know more than a bariatric dietitian about uh, about how you get your plant-based nutrition in. But uh, again, if you've got a tiny tummy and you can only fit a little bit in, and let's talk about the fact that most plant-based proteins are very bulky because of the yes. fibre in them, so that it's difficult to fit the volume in. You need to be really careful to choose those plant-based proteins that are of high quality. Mm, and complete, and they're quite hard to find. They are. We do see a, more of a move towards a plant-based diet, and it is happening in the bariatric community as well. What do you see are the limitations there perhaps, and what do they need to be really aware of when they kind of undertaking that style yeah. of eating? So whilst this um, podcast about protein, obviously protein, um, one of the other things that we often see in a plant-based um, diet is low iron. And, mm. and let's be, be really clear here that bariatric patients are at risk of low iron B12 anyway. So if you're then going plant-based, that enhances that risk. So very important. Um, so just a little plug for bariatric multivitamins, which are really essential for everyone, but absolutely essential for those who are following plant-based because they will contain more iron and B12 than a standard multi. So very important if you're plant-based, think about your multis. So iron's definitely a key. B12, of course, if you're completely plant-based, um, nutritional yeast is a source of B12 or fortified soy milks, but B12 is largely only found in animal products, so very difficult to meet B12. Zinc, um, a little bit easier to meet. Calcium can be another one, just depending on your source of, of alternative milks. And again, really important to make sure they're calcium fortified. Um, and even omega-3 fats, which mm. can be sourced from things like flaxseed um, and chia seeds. But again, the volumes are quite mm. high to meet your requirements. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's Looking at that plant-based diet, it's lacking, it can be lacking in the nutrients that are also the key ones that are affected by the surgery. So it's almost like a double whammy of yes. really making sure that, that B12, calcium, iron, you know, are all kept up to standard. And that would then be, you know, extra supplementation and more recent Absolutely. checking of bloods and, you know, just yes. closer monitoring. It's not impossible, but it's a very tricky balance. And, and um, it may well be important to get bloods at, say, three months. So certainly if if you're plant-based, it's essential, and most people should, but not everyone does, have bloods taken before surgery mm. um, and long enough before, say two months ideally, so that any deficiencies can be corrected. So if you were plant-based, I think it's essential you get your bloods before surgery. And then standard bloods are usually at six months. Maybe it would be worth considering the bloods to be done at three months if you mm. were plant-based just to see where those things align. Yeah, catching things before they slip too far. Absolutely. This is a huge topic protein isn't it and it's a we, huge topic yeah I think we could go on for days and I really think that we've captured your knowledge on uh, and what you've seen in practice so it's it's great to have your researched brain on board and thank you for your time today is there anything you want to add in conclusion or are you pretty happy with where we've gone no, so I think far? we've probably covered most things um hmm. I, I guess the message is um if you know this is a tricky area it is quite complex we're still learning and we're still uncovering things so how on earth the the general population can be on top of it when 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 we're still trying to work on it yes. is is a question. So I guess the key is definitely get support. So if you 
it, you know, you probably, uh, it's essential, I would think, to link in with a with a, a bariatric dietitian so that this is not a minefield that you're trying to navigate on your own because it doesn't have to be tricky. It, it You know, the, the path really after surgery um, shouldn't be a, a difficult path. There are challenges, but we really want people to be able to feel as if they're enjoying their progress mm. um, in, in lots of ways, just not numbers on the scales, but certainly enjoying food again, not having to be bound to how much protein am I having? Am I, you know, worried about, because it's really just another form of dieting. All of that. Agreed. Yes, absolutely. I sort of want to and it, away it from again that. becomes a stressful thing around food again, which is the whole reason we're here. So if you're a lot of, I see a lot of it in our groups where they're like, oh, I'm trying this and I'm going to do that. And it's like, if you just went and saw someone, you could cut out all this guessing, mm. the guessing and trying something new and then that's not working. And then the guessing again and trying something else and that doesn't work. That's just frustrating. And, um, and you know, any practitioner who knows their stuff can cut all of that time out and all that frustration. And, you know, it's, you invest your heart and soul into undergoing bariatric surgery. It's a financial commitment. It's a lifestyle change. Why not then leverage that when you're getting good support and shortcut the problems? Whenever there's something coming up, just go and see someone and get it sorted out. Absolutely. And it's very individual. I mean, the cookie cutter approach that this is what you need and and, and just because it's worked for someone else Mm. doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Everybody's different. Everyone has different medical histories and medical backgrounds, lifestyle, um, you know, psychological factors. If you if you factor in all the components that makes everyone individual, no wonder things don't work for everyone. It's pretty important that things are tailored with all of those factors in mind to best suit your individual needs. Mm, absolutely. Thank you. I think we can't um, emphasize that one strongly enough. I'd, yeah, thank you. I appreciate your time because I know you've put a lot of effort and research into the limited research on <laughs> protein and bariatric patients. So hopefully we'll spark a wave of, hey, hang on a minute, there's a hole in the market there. But as again, as a wrap-up, you'll find a whole lot of information on protein and if you need supplements and that sort of thing, they're all on the BN Multi website. Sally Livick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Jackie, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And just before you go, we would love to hear your feedback. So please give us a rating and review. For other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration, come and drop into our Facebook community at BN Bariatric. If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.